This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 30th of June, 2021. The topic was NADOC Week, Heal Country, Heal Our Nation. On the panel we had Vicky McKenna, Head of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Network at BDI and Lived Experience Representative. David Edwards, Co-Director of WellMob Aboriginal Mental Health Project at the University of Sydney. And Leilani Darwin, Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Strategy at BDI. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to tonight's uh, podcast for the Black Dog Institute, Expert Insights for Health Professionals. Today, is uh, we're going to be covering NADOC Week, Hill Country, Hill Our Nation. We've got a really exciting podcast for you today. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to give my acknowledgement um, of country. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I'm zooming in from Gordon, New South Wales, which is the Gurungai Nation of the Darumurugal or Darug people. I uh, just discovered today whilst doing some research that there are over 1,000 Aboriginal heritage sites across the North Shore. So we're going to try and make an effort um, in the next few weeks to visit some of these heritage sites. Didn't even realise that. I'd like to pay my respects to elders, both past, present um, and to the future, and to extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are present here today. Our panel members tonight, we've got the wonderful Vicky McKenna, um, David Edwards and Leilani Darwin. We might uh, do a quick whip around um, and I'll get each of our panel members to just introduce yourself, where you're from, and a little bit about the work that you do. So we might start you, with Carol. David tonight. Um, David. Good to you, everyone. I'm David Edwards. I'm a Waramai fella. My mob are uh, Gummy Pingle clan from the area that's now known as Karua, which is north of Newcastle. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm zooming in from Bundjalung country uh, up in the northern rivers of New South Wales and Widjibal Wybal uh, country in spe uh, specifically. I'd also like to acknowledge my fellow panellists, Vicky and Leilani, and any other mob that are out there uh, zooming in tonight. Um, I'm a father of two. I uh, work in the, uh, the University of Sydney, which is actually a project, a national project called e-mental health in practice. Um, I actually grew up uh, in Yagara country in Brisbane and moved down to Bundjalung country about 20 odd years ago where I raised my family. And uh, I'm not a, a clinician. I actually um, work in the area of uh, health promotion and knowledge exchange. My background is actually in uh, undergrad is, is in ecology and I've worked in ecology for about 20 odd years and got into Aboriginal health only in the last um, several years. Um, as well as working on the electronic mental health in practice project, I work on an Indigenous fathering project. And uh, I'd just like to do a bit of, bit of a shout out to my um, small part-time team, the WellMob website team, um, who uh, without them, I wouldn't be here. So uh, thanks for having me tonight, Carol. Thank you, David. And we will definitely be doing more than a shout out to the WellMob team because we're going to talk a little bit more about that initiative later on in the podcast. We might now go to Leilani. Leilani, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, thanks so much, Carol, and good evening, everyone. 
So my name is Leilani Darwin and I am a new knuckle Kondamuka woman from Stradbroke Island on my mum's side of the family. And we're actually immigrants on my dad's side of the family of French Indian descent. Um, I am living and working on Yagara, Jagara and Yagara people's lands. And earlier this year I was um, uh, given the opportunity to join the executive leadership team at the Black Dog Institute and have been driving some very interesting um, work at the moment that we've been doing on our strategic um, plan and our, our next five-year um, strategy, which really embeds us being a trusted partner to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And part of that really too has, um, that has allowed me to feel quite comfortable in in taking that opportunity is knowing that um, Vicky has um, joined our team as um, the head of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Lived Experience Centre. So that's me. Ah, thanks, Leilani. Now we're going to turn to Vicky. You've got a really nice introduction from Leilani already. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Vicky, um, and where you're from and what work you do? Thanks, Carol. Um, hello, everyone. Ngai Nilawal Biki McKenna. Ngai Wiri Aranga Nyaru Bonabangan Jando. Yano Buru Rebibi. So I've just said hello to everyone out there. How are you? Uh, my name is Vicky McKenna. I am a very proud Yaru and Bonaba woman. And my country, my home is here in Broome. Um I am a proud mother of five beautiful um, adult children now and a grandmother to 17. Um, because of my studies and previous work in social and emotional well-being and suicide prevention, I now um, head the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Lived Experience Centre. Um, uh, I joined that quite recently, only two months ago. So my unique position is to develop and, and build a centre and to evaluate, elevate the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lived experience voices in mental health and suicide prevention. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vicky, for that. Um, really appreciate everyone being here tonight. I just realized I haven't introduced myself. I am Carol Newell and I am the moderator for tonight's podcast. So welcome everyone. We might start the conversation going. I'm going to turn to David first. David, you are, and you did a small shout out to the wonderful WellMob Aboriginal Mental Health Project at the University of Sydney. And you are the co-director, am I correct? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I really love the name WellMob, um, and it's important here maybe to clarify because we sometimes get international um, visitors as well. What mob me means? I, I love that name. What would this mob mean? Well, the WellMob website is, I guess, a bit of a uh, a junction of uh, well-being and our mob, which is something Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people collectively refer to our people, um, and whilst we we sort of call ourselves one mob where we're many people and we have many different communities and many different cultures embedded into the landscape and the country that we live in. And um, there's, there's no one community that does business like another community and we all share a, a common uh, underlying 
a belief in uh, in our spirituality and and how how we play part of um, country and and interact. But we all have parts of different stories across the country, which is really um, interesting for the NADOC theme about healing country. Um, but the WellMob website that I'm involved with was basically an idea that came from Bunjilung country. Um, the uh, Aboriginal uh, mental health and wellbeing workers here really wanted a one-stop shop of uh, Indigenous specific online resources. Like when we talk about online resources, we talk about videos and apps and other websites and PDFs, um, podcasts like this one will be turned into. Those sorts of resources that are easily accessible for um, health workers to share with their Indigenous clients and for the clients then to be able to integrate them within their wellbeing practice. So whether it's an app around mindfulness or it's a language program, or it might be uh, someone just sharing their story about how they um, got through an issue. Those sorts of, I guess, narratives are really important to our people to, to maintain it, their well-being. And um, I guess they're available 24-7, which is really important these days um, with the pandemic and the loss of face-to-face -face access um, to some of our support and counselling uh, teams out there. I guess WellMob is a is a tool for those workers rather than a replacement for those workers because we all know face-to-face -face, um, services uh, are most important. So, yeah, that's a little bit about WellMob. Is there anything else, Carol? This is really interesting. I think we had a bit of a conversation about this earlier, David. You know, you know where, when we talk about social and emotional well-being, what does it mean to you as an Aboriginal person? And where do you think the biggest contrast is with non-Indigenous communities? Thanks. Yeah, Carol, I can probably only talk on my own behalf with regards to that. But I guess um, I like to talk about um, the social-emotional well-being model that Anipat Dudgeon and uh, Graham Gee adapted because it's a holistic Indigenous concept around social emotional wellbeing, which resonates with me and, and actually is what the WellMob website's been modelled on. And basically what that social emotional wellbeing model is, is that mental health is only part of our wellbeing. Our wellbeing is made up of lots of different other things, which might differ from non-Indigenous people. And that includes our connection to country, to kin, to culture, um, our, our interaction uh, with, with landscape and with people. And all those things are influenced by our economic, political uh, and social circumstances. So that big picture Indigenous wellbeing model resonates for me because I feel like my wellbeing is very connected to my connection to country and community and, and my mob. Um, I didn't grow up on country, so some, I find it sometimes pretty challenging to find that connection. I've, I do have strong connection to the ocean with my people, the saltwater people. Um, when I go back on country, I've been very fortunate to, to have um, been taken under the wing of, of a few elders that have, have helped me with main, try and find that connection and, and maintain that connection. But I'm learning, and um, it's a, it's layers. You know, I feel like you every time you have an experience. Um, you get layers of the story, you know, layers of learning that sort of, are, for me now, of such a big part of my well-being and something that I hope to pass on to my young men that are now 24 and uh, 18. So it's an important part of my journey and, and hopefully their journey. Yeah, it sounds like well-being and maybe it's such an important lesson for non-Indigenous Australians like myself is that it's not just the medical model 
that all of us could potentially benefit from looking at it from a really broader perspective. Yeah, I think just to elaborate on what I think just to elaborate on what David has already shared with us, for me it really is that that sense of holistic well-being and that we um as individuals and I think more of the westernized um modeling really kind of pick and choose aspects of us and diagnosis and things that we need to look at whereas for us that social emotional well-being holistic compass um, encompasses all of us and and what that looks like and you know as David mentioned that looks different for everyone for me um having only found out a couple of years ago where my family are from um you know my Aboriginal family I never again had that ability to kind of grow up on country or understand that but I've had some pretty phenomenal experiences myself um in different parts of the country and and some of the stuff that I do on my well-being in connecting to country is just, you know, um, considering have I gone outside and, and actually put my feet on the ground and, and grounded myself and and what that feels like for me. So the the spirituality side of things, that's something I really strongly connect to, again, which is part of that, that sense of holistic well-being and something that really drives me and what I do now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Leilani. Now, I'm. Um, I just want some clarification. What does "grounded" mean? Grounded. Um, yeah, I mean, so for me, again, that probably comes more to the spirituality side of things, and so there is a sense, I think, and this is not um, uh, anything in particular just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, but it's the grounding that we get from connection to Mother Earth and to nature. And so if you think about the Earth um, as something that can actually reinvigorize you and re-energize you and your connections to it just by grounding and, and having your, your actual feet or your hands, you know, some people talk about running their hands through soil when they go back on country and things like that, it actually can be quite soothing and calming for people. That sounds beautiful. Right, and that, uh, get a sense of that um, almost a strong advocacy for the environment um, and a love for it as well. Is that is have I got that right, Vicky? <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of that connection to country. Yeah. So in terms of um, uh, connection to country, I didn't just want to share with you, um, you know, through the sacredness of the land, our identity has been formed. So I just want to share with you, so you just, um, you might be able to understand or appreciate uh, what this connection to country means for us. So our concept of life for an unborn Aboriginal child is one in which the child is brought through life through the dream that the father has before the time of birth, as my father had. Through this dreaming, the father connects the unborn child to the land and the child has a connection to country. The spiritual connection will be in the form of an animal from the land or sea, a plant or a particular area of land. This is his or her rye. The inner identity of the child, it means that the person also becomes a protector and a custodian. My rye is a barramundi. Our law prohibits me from killing or eating a barramundi. When we die, our rye goes back into the country. 
So I just wanted to give you a sense of how strong this connection to country is for us. Um, you know, we have been able to prove um, in, in the Supreme Court our connection to country, to people that don't understand. Um, so for me, um, this connection to country, that's, um, that's the part of, start of my journey, but it is my heritage, it is my history, it is my identity, my country um, uh, is also um, allows me entitlements being on my country. I also am aware that with my country, there are roles and responsibilities that I have to it. So when we talk about connection to country, uh, the best way, I suppose, especially for women to understand is that it is like a mother and a baby. You know, the mother must care for the child. And often we say we care for the country and the country will care for us. So um, just so that you understand that um, how in-depth that connection is, um, we would we like to look at it um, in that way. It seems to me what you've really conveyed is this really deep sense of love and respect, and it's a reciprocal relationship. Absolutely, yeah. How do you um, pass on that to generations is it by connecting with your mob is it talking about it is it the experience of grounding in country i would say it's it's um all um uh you know it can be done in many many ways um as a grandmother i I have a role in ensuring um that my grandchildren are educated um, and that we're able to participate um, in any cultural events um, to strengthen that that connection as well. Um, yeah, so um, I take my role very seriously as an educator to my grandchildren. Um, yeah, and and by doing that, you know, you um, ensuring that your Children and grandchildren are going to grow up, um, and with being able to embed that in their lives as well. Yeah, um, Vicky, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the field of mental health? Because you told us very briefly in your introduction, but what's that journey been like? How did you become involved in mental health? What inspired you? Mm. Well, um. I graduated with a diploma in child psychoanalytic psychotherapy from um, Monash University, and as well, I've completed other studies in in um, psychotherapy and counselling. But my most valued educational asset um, that contribute to the position has been my lived experience and the negative witnessing the negative norms um, in our communities. Um, this really prompted me to undertake the work in this field. So, um, you know, growing up in a community, witnessing um, and experiencing life, um, for us, I'd always consider that 
our, we lived abnormal lives. Our normal was abnormal. We were um, other things like neg- negative norms is um, our community members still not, you know, um, still not accessing service services through fear of, you know, um, uh, um, through fear of, of um, uh, past government um, impacts or, you know, laws that, that impacted on our people. Say, for example, if we're talking about um, police department, there's, there's still a lot of fear engaging with police because they also took part in assimilation, um, Department of Child Protection. So um, we had our people not accessing services also, um, and it was also witnessing this and seeing and I suppose so. I suppose um, part of that was my own curiosity, is wanting to understand behaviour and why people behave the way that they did. Um, I've gone from seeing family members who were young and healthy, and then um, you know quite quickly they became mentally unwell, uh, severely unwell, and um, really trying to understand what was happening. And of course, you know, down the track, I had my own lived experience. Um, and I suppose it was my fear of never ever wanting anyone in my family or, or friends or people I knew to ever go through my experience that I needed to do something about it. And, um, you know, 29 years ago, I re- remember sitting on the edge of the bed thinking um, I needed something, uh, and I just wished at that time that someone could just come and come and share something or talk to me and um you know I was um we were grateful to be in um Cairns last week so I actually got to see that come for that to just really come alive. So I thought I'd had all those years ago we actually using it um as a tool in suicide prevention today and that's that you sharing of the lived experience stories. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Vicky. Um, Vicky mentioned negative norms. And I'd love to maybe go back to David here. What do you think is one of the most you know, prevalent and maybe damaging negative norms that are associated or is embedded um, in our culture today that really is a barrier to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' mental health? We could probably unpack that all night, um, <clears throat> but I, I think the only comment I'll sort of make on that is like hearing Vicky talk about the story of her community and, and the negative norms. I also, though, hear this strong resilience, this strong connection, this strong sense of responsibility around um, our cultural obligations. And I kind of feel like whilst um, non-Indigenous Australians often do hear about the negative stereotypes, I mean, um, about Aboriginal people and substance misuse, um, about some of the other symptoms, I think, of that complex trauma our people have experienced because of the past 230 years of government policies trying to break our culture and break our connections. We, we're still here and our connection's still very strong. And despite all this adversity um, and that, you know, we're overrepresented in suicide rates, incarceration, in chronic disease, et cetera, et cetera. 
we are still here and we're still strong. And and I think we've got a lot to share with our non-Indigenous Australians around what keeps us strong in that space. Um, I think I think our sense of who we are, our identity, and our and our spiritual connection to this place helps keep us strong through all that adversity. Yeah. I love that because whilst you're pointing, whilst we're talking about negative norms, we're also pointing to a lot of resilience that's happening at the moment that we also need to recognise as well. Leilani, you are the director of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Strategy at the Black Dog Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into mental health promotion? It's been a really interesting journey as to how and why I've ended up in this role. And so I just want to go back really briefly and talk about what was a, a big piece of work that in particular um, Nathan from my team and I led across the whole of the organisation, a scoping strategy, which was basically we wanted to, the board wanted to better understand what can we do as an organisation to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? What are we already doing and what could that look like? Um, so during that time, we held uh, interviews and uh, online face-to-face. We did a lot of work looking at what was happening in the sector, what were some of the things we were already doing. And we developed a a five-year plan um, with seven key themes. Without going into too much detail of that, um, quite profoundly and historically, the board and the executive at the time last year said, we are going to, to do this. And I said, what do you mean this? And they said, we are going to implement your full five-year strategy and that was um, um, a a shock that I still think I'm still in shock about all this time later in in a good way because I've never seen that level of commitment from a non-Indigenous organisation to get it right and and to be frank when we were putting it together we did it that way but we were thinking that certain things would be picked and, and that they would go yeah we'll do this we'll do that and we'll do this because that's what we typically see Um, Not that they would fully support self-funding that. So fast-forwarding to where we are now, as part of our new five-year strategic vision, we have four core pillars, and one of those is being a trusted partner to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to improve social emotional wellbeing. So the opportunity that that gives us is um, really, I guess, that chance to, to really demonstrate and show within our organisation and to other organisations what it really looks like to not feel the need to lead the solutions and the programs and the services and activities with regards to suicide prevention and mental health programs, that in fact it's really important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities to lead that, but that we can provide um, support, that we as an organisation, can be an ally and a champion for that. Um, I've formed, newly forming a, a, a directorate, a new directorate, and um, really looking at what does that look like. So there's a range of activities that we will be doing um, internally across the organisation and then really starting to build and strengthen our partnerships and opportunities with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations, both within the sector and also communities. So very very exciting you you mentioned trusted partner and Vicky has also mentioned that it's been very hard sometimes to trust um, using and implementing some of the services that are available what establishes trust or what increases trust with Aboriginal 
Straight Islander community, Leilani? Yeah, I think that probably the first part to recognise in this, and this has been something, conversations I've had with organisations over the years, that it's not the organisation who gets to deem themselves to be a trusted partner or respected, that it's in fact the communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who, who say whether or not that is. So for myself um, and Pat Dudgeon and others in what was a couple of years of work that we had done previously with the Black Dog Institute, we were able to gain a really clear insight as to how they worked, what the staff were like, what they were prioritising, how they valued us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, the opportunities to really be leaders and to just give the expertise that we have across the National Suicide Prevention Trial Sites. And then what was a really fantastic conversation with Helen Christensen and Nicole Pecane, Um where they, in fact, said no to us when we asked them if we could have the lived experience centre with them. And they said no because they said, that's no, that's your thing, that's not us. And we went, hmm. And this is, that's that that's a big point of difference for us because, unfortunately, Carol, what we see in a lot of our programs and services is a lot of organisations really willing to go, yeah, I'll do it because it's like a feather in their cap. Um, you know, it's something for them. It's, it's more of an income stream but they haven't got the fundamentals and understanding Indigenous governance and leadership and how that actually works. And so, you know, we, we were really, um, I guess, clear on putting that stuff in place. And then what we've been able to do um, over the past couple of years since uh, starting the Lived Experience Centre and, and working with Black Dog is really establishing what does trust look like. And that means that people take a back seat um, you know, white privilege is is acknowledged, it's called out, and that, in fact, it's us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other people that we bring in on the journey who are really leading what we're doing. Yep. That sounds fantastic. I'm so excited. What's the most exciting part of your five-year strategic program that you want to shout out to that's coming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so passionate. I'm excited just listening to you. Well, I am, but maybe the- some of that is is more nervousness, Carol. Maybe some <laughs> of that is actually like, oh, we've got to do it. Um, no, I think what I'm most excited about is actually doing what we said we'd do, you know, moving past tokenism, moving past disingenuous engagement and ticker box approaches to actually supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to walking together with the Black Dog Institute and everyone else that forms our partners and our collaborators to get this right. For me, it's about saving lives. It, it really is. And that's through the work that we do with mental health concerns, through to the work that we do in suicide prevention. I think collectively, if there's one thing that we know in this nation, it's that we cannot do this work alone. And it takes the leadership and guidance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people along with everybody else in this country to accept responsibility and to step up and really actually do the work that's needed. That's fantastic. What has the response been? I mean, I'm acknowledging that you've got so many different cultures and nations out there. What's been the response? Has it been quite receptive? Because recognising that Black Dog is a non-Indigenous, you know, organisation. I think with uh, with the organisations that we have already been working with and have those established relationships, this response has been fantastic and really supportive and and encouraging of that. 
And and what I've started to see, and I think we'll see more of, and I think it's fair, is those that haven't worked with us and really kind of get they're getting their head around what why why is this anything to do with the Black Dog Institute and what does that actually look like? And for us, a big part of that that messaging is in being able to say this is not about coming in and taking over or doing anything. It's just like we've got some amazing people here. We've got incredible experience and expertise for, a, a, you know, a medical research institute. What can we do to help what you're doing? You know, we, we're in such a competitive space. And if there's one thing that we're really promoting and have been trying to do for some time is to say, you know what, we can all work together and we've all got a role to play and we all bring such unique experiences and skills to this that we should be working together. Mm, absolutely. And, and, um, in terms of accessibility, because I recognise that Black Dog is very much online as well. We've got a lot of digital tools, and that's true for um, WellMob being online as well on a website. Um, has there been a good uptake of digital technology, not as a replacement, but you know, to to more remote regions? Uh, I think it's different everywhere. And some places, no, some places, yes. And what I've seen where those models have been successful is really where the local Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations have really taken leadership in that and really been proactive. You will always have the issues here where connectivity, accessibility to the right tools and, you know, I guess literacy just in using technology will always continue to be a barrier. Though, having said that, though, I think that there would have been some level of increase in that participation. And we acknowledge as an organisation that we will be doing some work really to better understand all the programs and services that we have that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities do access so that we make sure that we are providing something that is culturally appropriate, safe and informed, and that, you know, really is kind of hitting the, the needs of that. We've got iBobly program, you know, the Social Emotional Wellbeing app, which has been doing brilliantly, and Tiani Shaikh has been leading that, like, she just does such an incredible job and what she's put in place with, with the governance group for that and just the education piece more broadly. And I think for us there's more opportunities to do that. Again, not wanting to step on people's toes, but really just listening to communities and hearing what their needs are and what they would find useful and seeing if it's something that we can support. Absolutely. David, what about you? What are some of, speaking about online digital resources, um, what are some of your favourite online resources um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? It's probably um, worth just making making the distinction that a lot of the online resources that we promote on WellMob are sort of low intensity or health education, health promotion resources rather than um, psychoeducational. Um Leilani mentioned iBobly app that the Black Dog Institute and, and Tiani Schaefer um, have so wonderfully uh, developed and promoted amongst our community. It's a free app that um, people can download and I guess it's a bit of a self-managed tool, a self-management tool for people's well-being where they can sort of check in and get some guidance on certain issues and there's, uh, there's lots of um, material that's on that app that you don't need Wi-Fi access for. Um, as Leilani said, I, I think I'd just like to promote local content is really important for our diverse communities out there. And a lot of our um, Aboriginal community um, health services are, are developing their own resources that promote health programs. Um, a lot of our creative 
um, mob are out there doing deadly videos and, and, you know, you just have to look at social media platforms, which can be used appropriately to help share our culture and, and share some of the, the strengths that we, um, we find for our well-being around our language and music um, and story. Fantastic. So you mentioned, is it the iBobbly app? iBobbly app, yeah. Yeah, okay. I uh, just wanted to get the <laughs> get it correct. I can see it's in the uh, the chat the there um, yep. if people want to download that. And uh, um, it's good, good, good one to recommend to your Indigenous clients that might need a, a little bit of a, uh, a check-in sort of process. Um, there is other apps out there that um, – targeting young people particularly there's there's a non-indigenous one called check-in believe it or not from beyond blue that's really good for young people to to use as a self-management tool uh, and for practitioners and clinicians it's a great uh i guess goal setting um, app that's provided provided by uh, the menzies school of health research called stay strong and that's a really good strength-based um, goal setting tool that uh, a practitioner can sit down with their indigenous client map out who keeps them strong, what keeps them strong, what's some of their worries, and then come up with an action plan of, of how to uh, re- revisit those goals um, each session and, and to, to follow up on it. So some really good tools out there for both our mob and for practitioners. So what things can practitioners think about when using digital interventions with their um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients? Are there any things that we need to consider when introducing digital interventions yeah i'll just probably confirm what leilani was talking about is is you know just make sure um access accessibility is possible like that it is maybe um, wi-fi issues and digital literacy is there so check in with your client if they've got a smartphone and do they use it um a lot of people don't think about using their their smartphone for well-being they think about you know, looking at sport results or just social media. So, yeah, there's some really useful tools there. Um, I kind of think just having a yarn with people around a health promotion resource, particularly for non-Indigenous practitioners, um, is a good way to to connect with their Indigenous clients because often it's sort of a third party where you can maybe have a look at the the monitor and look at a video around a particular issue. It might be a sensitive issue around substance misuse or around... Um, lifestyle decisions so that can be a great way to have a yarn about a tricky topic that might otherwise bring shame to a person that you know that might feel a bit of sense of shame having to talk about this to a practitioner but if you're you're watching a video or looking at a fact sheet on it often can be a great segue into having um, building a bit of rapport and trust Absolutely. Uh, turning to you now Vicky not to put you on the spot but you're a clinician yourself what does um what what should be in that yarn? You know, what I'm so used to as a non-Indigenous practitioner going in, I've got my little clipboard and I've got my structured questionnaire, and clearly that probably wouldn't work very well with an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander client. What what might be involved in having a yarn? What what needs to be in there first in terms of building a rapport? Um, I think in, in the first place you need to be very aware of your you know, your, your body and how you pres- present yourself. Um, and in that, I would say that um, often when you would um, be engaging, uh, whether it be young people or old people, um, it's uh, always good to have that approval from them first. 
is not thinking just because you're the clinician or you're the professional here that you can just come in and, and do what you like. You need to have, um, you need to request uh, approval. Um, you'd also be very mindful um, of the way that you engage with them. Um, for Aboriginal people, it is disrespectful to, especially with our old people, it's disrespectful to stare them in the face. So often, um, you know, eyes are normally looking to the ground when you're communicating. Young people nowadays, um, you know, they don't mind at all if you if you look at them face to face. But it's important as part of that in, engagement and having that conversation is to sit in a place where uh, both of you are comfortable. So sitting beside rather rather than directly in front. So, you know, you really need to get um, um, that right before you start the yarn. And for me, it always starts with, you know, who are you and who's your mob, where you come from. And I think that's pretty much standard with all of us. And we ask each other as professional Labrador people anyway, or, or even with Torres Strait Islander people, we will ask them their name, um, you know, who's their family and where do they come from. And that's generally a really good start. Um, our people are always interested, you know, as social beings, always interested in knowing um, about you um, and to hear a little bit of your story. Generally, um, generally in any kind of um, situation, as, as professional people, you're not encouraged to share information about yourself, personal information. So, Yanni, yeah, I think you just, um, you know, I think, it, like for me, it's this this common practice is that you know you would ask for approval first. You would make sure that what you're doing, you you're behaving in a safe way. You're not making them feel uncomfortable. Often, um, you know, years ago when I did a lot of clinical work, um, it wasn't really ethical to do um, um, like therapy sessions outside of four walls. Um, but for us, for me working, it was always important that the, as long as the person felt safe, it didn't matter where it was. And, you know, that safe could be them sitting as passengers in your car or um, safe could be sitting in the carport or on a mango tree on the background as long as, you know, the um, client or the person I was working with felt safe. Yeah, so, you know, there's different ways of working. We find that um, sometimes those, those typical clinical spaces um, can be very um, sterile and um, our people just don't, just, they feel safe if you're, you know, if they can connect and they can be distracted, um, you know, in, a, in an environment, you know, um, it's easier then for you to communicate with them because sometimes it almost feels like, as um, David was saying, I think for some of those apps, is that it can act like as a third person. There's a distraction there that helps the conversation. Absolutely. Do you know, it's so interesting because we're so trained. Like I remember just going into my first training um, prac where they teach us not to reveal anything about ourselves. It's seen as unprofessional. And even now there's a recommendation when we're Zooming not to have any pictures behind us of our family. And yet 
when we think about so many communities, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, that family and knowing that you're a person outside of these four walls and your connection with your community really increases that sense of trust. Um, and it's not something we even think about. We're just trained this way, um, but it can work so much better in some other cultures to, to just connect with our client like human beings um, rather than this top-down approach of I'm the expert in mental health and, you know, you listen to me and, you know, be able to, to just connect with our clients. So I really love the reminder to do that. Perhaps it would work even with our non-Indigenous clients as well to have a little bit of that, to be able to take down those four walls and go for a walk um, and connect outside um, wherever it's safe. Carol, I think just even bringing that back to basic human behaviours and how we connect, the concept of walking up to or sitting next to someone and randomly asking them their most deepest, darkest thoughts and what troubles them the most is just, you know, if you think about that as a concept, it would blow your mind. You wouldn't do it, right? So it kind of makes sense to really think about those things that Vicky has mentioned, the environment, the setup. Um, I saw earlier someone made a comment about in the chat, you know, what are some of those ways that you can do that? And, and Vicky's mentioned a lot of that stuff. Sometimes it's not even talking about what has brought you here today. The one thing that we is the first thing that you kind of like open up with. Maybe it's just like, how's your day been? What have you been getting up to? You know, like really just some of that small chat and people who feel really uncomfortable with that, the more comfortable they feel with you, the more likely they are to have to build that trust and rapport to, to talk to you about some of that stuff that's been troubling them. Absolutely. Do you think that our medical model itself, that clinical setting, and also, you know, as in suits, has been a barrier to to care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities because of, like Vicky's mentioned, that history, um, you know, with, with governance is associated with that, I would imagine, in that clinical setting as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and Vicky could give you lots of examples, but I think I'll, I'll share with everyone my own lived experience in that as a young person following my first suicide attempt. And um, my auntie had um, taken me to someone who was a brilliant psychologist, apparently, and, you know, her engagement methods were playing games and cards and stuff like that. And I'd be like, what did you talk about? I was like, well, we played a game and that. And I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> But at the same time, I really didn't realise until later, I really didn't talk to her about anything because I was a system kid. I was a kid who had been in and out of foster care. I was a kid who grew up, grew up in, a, in a home with violence and, and lots of situations that saw um, police and ambulance and, and, you know, child safety come into my home environment. So I did learn and I was shut off to only sharing certain things because for me, fundamentally it was most important to stay together with my my mother and my sisters and so the the way that the system is so far as disclosure and and whoever it is at that time I will say who is doing an assessment based on safety of that person or perceived safety who might not understand what that looks like could um unknowingly do more damage to someone's mental health and well-being um, by taking them out of what might seem to them as probably not the safest place but actually is the thing that's keeping them most well because they have that connection. 
So there, there is for sure, and you mentioned it, Carol, I remember when I was doing my diploma of counselling and I thought, uh, this, you know, like they were, they were teaching the micro skills and it was quite interesting uh, for the psychologist who was teaching us that who said, geez, I wish that they'd just do this in psychology and said that they don't even teach the micro skills of how to build rapport and connection with someone, which I found quite interesting um, so far as how we are teaching our future generations to to work with people in this space. And I think there's just so many improvements that we should and can consider. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned something that's so important that we're not even culturally aware of, that you can walk into a room and a person can have completely different fears. I can have a client walk in and I only think about the anxiety disorder. Oh, you're you're afraid of a party, a big crowd, or you're afraid you have worries about work. But, you know, your experience as a young person walking in is, if I say anything, my family could be broken up. Right. And those are real and very scary fears that can really harm, you know, just being able to share information in that session at all. Um, And it's something that we probably need to be more aware of. Now, I have an interesting question here. And um, is there any pointers that, um, you know, our panel members could give to establish trust fairly quickly? Because sometimes when we walk into a a session sometimes it's you know we only get about two hours um with a aboriginal and torres strait islander um stakeholder so is there anything we need to do very quickly to be able to establish some trust or it wouldn't be any different i people sense if you're genuine or not i think to try and be genuine and come from the heart when you're meeting somebody and and yeah like you know we've heard from from Vicky, how important it is to say who you are, where you're from, and what your background is. Trying to maybe break down some of those tr- that training you've been given to put up the four walls, as you put it, Carol. You know, I think that's a really important um, step to try and build that rapport and trust. But I guess we're all coming. You know, I guess anyone who's seeking help in that way of seeing a counsellor or some a support person. Is probably already going to be on edge and and possibly um, you know a bit mistrusting and and we you know we've heard a little bit about the reasons why there is that healthy mistrust that our people have with um, authority and you as a practitioner are often seen as another authority and as Leilani mentioned you know like with child protection services can be called in and mandatory reporting on things so I think you've got to think about all those things in the background and how that might sort of um, be a barrier for someone to open up so creating that rapport and trust and respect um, is something that's really important. Yeah. Thanks for that, David. So on a broader scope, Vicky, what are some important steps being made to heal the hurt and loss from connection to country? Because we've mentioned this already, that that other element that we keep forgetting in, you know, well-being and mental health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. How do we start to begin to heal that? And is there any practical tips you can give us as practitioners to recognize oh, and acknowledge yeah, that? Just say anyway um, to anyone working um, professionally in mental health or suicide prevention is really um, a way to help um, those heal from the hurt of loss, their loss of connection to country, is to undertake um, cultural safety, cultural awareness training. I think that would be the um, 
first first step to to take, especially if you're not living um, if you're not living in um, in an area that that has um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander population, or you're not working with them. I think you know if you can seek that kind of service um, outside of your workplace, I think would be a first step because um, what that will do is um, you know broaden your perspectives um, about Aboriginal people and and our culture. And, you know, it will help them understand that a loss of land is a loss of life to us and it is a dis- disruption disruption um, to the balance in our life, you know, and we have that concept that if you care for country, it will care for you. Um, it's important uh, that if you're providing that kind of support, um, to anyone that has a loss of connection to country is if you're the person providing that help is that you show genuine interest in in them. Um, you know, and, and the way to heal that can be done through um, understanding who we are first and understanding what we've been through. That will help you as a clinician uh, or a specialist or whatever your role is. I just thought I might add on to what Vicky's talking about. Like, yeah, we have mob that live in urban centres and, you know, rural remote areas. <clears throat> I think the real good thing I find personally about when I feel a loss of sense of connection to country is what Leilani talks about. Take your shoes off, get outside, connect to mother, you know, feel that land under your feet, the sand under your feet, the water under your feet, whatever, wherever you live, the rocks. And that's what we t- talk about when we talk about grounding it's our traditional, um, I think, practice of mindfulness. We've been doing mindfulness since the dreaming. You know, we look at a bird. We we'll see. We will hear the wind change. We'll smell something in blossom. Those things are what connects us to country and what keeps our spirit strong. And by being in that state where we feel connected to mother and connected to our culture, we can feel a sense of of safety and a sense of identity and a, and a sense sense of being connected. I think those little simple um, things that we can all do wherever we live, whether we're in the city or, or remote, um, can just, just help our well-being. Just to answer Dorothy's question, there are lots of incredible um, programs that are actually available out there around um, cultural safety and cultural awareness and capacity building. Um, Vicky herself has got an incredible program that has been delivered to, I think, what, a thousand people so far, Vicky, probably more, um, uh, that she's developed. There's a lot of organisations that um, uh, have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have put together training programs and packages that are available to organisations to really further, I guess, assist in that education piece and understanding. And and I think it's really important when choosing that, I'll just say to um, have a look at feedback um, because where it's done well is a space that's open and safe for non-Indigenous people to ask questions that they might not feel comfortable to and to then receive a response that, um, you know, that isn't necessarily judgmental but just really informing and engaging and there's lots of opportunities to do that. 
Um, and part of the reasons of why that's so important, and it's one of the things that we're doing at the Black Dog Institute too, is really looking at boosting the different kind of training that we offer to staff based on the position that they play. So just having a look at the chat and, you know, people at the front desk, you know, some of those practicality things, like just to share with you now, if you're at a service and you're taking phone calls, you know, for a client, you're doing intake and that kind of stuff, and you are asking the question, are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Follow it up with why you're asking it um, because some people will say no straight up because their mind flicks to you're judging me, what are you using this for, blah, blah, blah. So just say we're asking you this question because we want to make sure that we're offering you the right service and to see if there's anything you know additional that we can provide support for you and that's a really genuine way to actually do that. I mean, I, I don't see it done, unfortunately, at the hospital and health services, but I wish that they would in emergency and things like that. In fact, half the time, I will say from my own experiences, they don't even ask you, um, even though they're meant to. So I think there's a lot of practical things that can be done, you know, within your own service where you really just start to um, explore, you know, what what do you want to do collectively to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to be in, in an environment that might not um, that won't um, that might not be triggering or unsafe space for them. Basically, where they they feel like they can engage and connect. And I think also going back to the the topic of this year's theme in in Hill Country and and to Vicky's earlier comments around the desecration of mines and countries. And it's a story that I heard many years ago, and I'm going to apologise in advance if, if they might happen to be listening to this, although I doubt it, but one can never be so sure. Um, it was a story that I had heard um, from somebody who was on their home country, and, and it was a really interesting insight, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but you know, they were talking about the flickering of the, the street lights and other things and this deep conversation they were having with someone about their country being sick. And and as they were kind of explaining that their country is sick and they were like, can't you see why I'm sick? That that genuine connection to how our country is comes back to us as people as well and vice versa. So it's it, it, understanding... Um, you know, I guess the importance of that is is really good. and um, But also understanding that people who have issues with identity who don't necessarily know that, that could also be quite triggering for them because it's the missing piece of the puzzle, the part that they don't know. Um, I will say too, I've had experiences where I've like been adopted into a, an adopted oak I mean, in our sense, into um, some Aboriginal families in, in different parts around this country. And they have been the times when I felt most well. And when I have gone to their country, I was like, what's this feeling? <laughs> and I was, I remember the first time it happened, I was quite young. I was like, I don't, I don't understand. What's it? Why am I just feeling so good? And like, what's happening? You know, and then having them explain to me, they're like, no, because you're part of our family now. So you're being welcomed onto this country and with us as part of that. And I was like, oh, you know, so it was this kind of really interesting moment for me. And I guess just really something putting it out there that, you know, you can maybe not belong necessarily, you know, from your own lineage to a family, but still really be accepted on country in different spaces. And and I do hear of, of um, non-Indigenous people and sometimes their experiences in some of our um, more rural and remote spaces where they spend a lot of time and 
really genuinely work with our community that they they have similar experiences it it does sound to me that your your people have known something that we're just starting to show in evidence and scientific research which is connecting with nature and you know really appreciating our natural environments and and our connection to land is actually evidence-based um, even among non-Indigenous Australians and communities, um, they've shown that people who spend time in nature actually have better well-being in general and belonging, a sense of community and, and fostering those relationships is also good for our well-being. Um, and I wish we would embrace a lot more of these, you know, just generally as part of mental health well-being program, which I think we're starting to in a lot of prevention um, interventions. Now, there's a really interesting question here from Robin, which is, what does healthy country look like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander? And that's an interesting one, maybe one we can end on um, and a message that we could take away. What does healthy country look like? You want to take this one, David? Oh, I'm sure my co-presenters will add, but for me, I think the difference between what Aboriginal people see as healthy country compared to maybe non-Indigenous Australians is that people in the landscape, we're part of healthy country. We, we don't just see a beautiful, clear running stream or uh, a lush forest or mountains. We see our people in the country and, and you know, the word Koori for people in the East Coast or Guri up here, um, it just means Aboriginal, like man, person. So we're, that's, that's our, our sense of place is we're part of the landscape. And I, I think um, tonight, you know, if there's a, if there's a take-home message for our, our participants, it's, it's really about getting to know your landscape and your country and, and some, maybe some of the elders and knowledge holders there. So, you know, you can build a rapport with your Aboriginal clients. You know, you have a client come in and go, oh, yeah, I got to meet auntie such and such down at the NAIDOC week um, celebration, you know. So trying to make that effort to connect with the country where you live and practice in is really important. It goes a long way, I think, to um, um, developing that relationship and rapport with your Indigenous clients. Sounds wonderful. Vicky, what about you? What does healthy country look like? Healthy country looks like where there is no disturbance. Yeah. And when I say disturbance, so we, we're very um, used to seeing mining companies mm. and machinery, um, all of that that takes place right across the Kimberley region and also the Pilbara here in Western Australia. Um, for me, it's it's being able to um, um, see um, a landscape where many forms of nature still exist and, and appear. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much for me is, is healthy, where we know where, where water should be flowing. Uh, we have areas where we actually have live um, waters in our, on our lands, which are very um, um, special places that we have. So seeing seeing all of that still in existence, so you can you know we can go back um, to these areas and be a part of part of that. Um, if I could give you an example, um, close to about um, 
two and a half months ago, I had the opportunity of going on a business camp uh, with other Aboriginal ladies here in the Kimberley. Uh, and we had that camp out at um, Yurimalay, uh, which is a school um, outside of Fitzroy Crossing. So it's in a, um, I'd say totally be about um, 90 kilometres outside of Fitzroy. Uh, and on the country, um, my grandmother is a um, woman from, you know, that country. She's a Bonobo lady. And I can tell you I have never had the experience of um, actually swimming and bathing in live, live water, waters. Um, I couldn't believe how rejuvenated, how did I uh, I never experienced that. I didn't feel tired any time after that day. That was, you know, I went and sat in there, and really it was um, all part of the, you know, just our conversations around the just us women talking early in the morning, deciding to go for a swim. And I've never had that experience of feeling so rejuvenated. And I honestly couldn't explain that that true feeling that I had that lasted with me for that. Um, rest of that time that I was there it was honestly it is you know just like dunking someone in in a bit of magic and pulling them out and saying you know what here off you go now you know um, all of those things you wanted sorted is fixed in your body and um, you've been you know you've been soaked and truly grounded um, in your grandmother's country so for me that's um, a healthy country um, keeps us healthy too I love that. You make me so envious, Vicky, just listening to that because it sounds magical and special and it gives us this different perspective. You know, we we have had so many negative norms, but when you talk about experiences like that, uh, you know, there's beauty um, in in what you, you experience in that life water um, that, you know, could actually be incorporated to how we see well-being. What about you, Leilani? What's healthy country for you? Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting because it looks different um, depending on where I'm going and what I'm doing. And I'd probably like to reflect on what was some an incredible opportunity that Vicky and I had um, in the Torres Straits recently, and and this island in particular. What that really looks like so far as healthy country for me was was the cultural practices. And, you know, when we think about what some people will be like, oh, they eat dugongs and turtles, it's like, yes, they do, but that's part of their cultural practices. And, you know, they they keep enough to sustain them and and you know to live on. And they know, you know, there's there's so much more behind that that we will never know because that's part of their cultural practices and protocols. The elders who, you know, who who spend time there still to this day, teaching young ones about reading the the tides and the currents and and the environment um, and the country that they live on because it's different everywhere. And and that I was, you know, for me, I was like, you know, this is really healthy country. And then, you know, being able to explore the different areas and so what you'll see, you know, in some places, which is where they they live and spend most of their time but a lot of those families as well have like there's a whole other part of the island that you have to go for a decent drive to actually experience and it's just a magical 
spaces and areas that are all theirs that they take their young ones to and they teach to fish and, you know, to camp and to forage and the part, you know, different things, the coconuts, but also the coconut seeds that you can eat. So for me, that's, you know, that was a good reminder and and an insight to what healthy country is. And somebody shared with me because they knew I was doing this today, um, a a quote from my Elder, Uncle Steve Brereton, and he said, healing country is healing us. We are country and country is us. We are all one. And I think as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we live, breathe, eat and sleep that, and that's our understanding. Mm. Yeah, and I'll just, just add to what Leilani say in Yarrow language, we say, Mabulian, Mabuburu, Mabunarianilu. So that is strong spirit, healthy, healthy country and healthy, healthy people. We can't have one without the other. It's beautiful. Yeah. I do have one other thing I'd love to ask before we finish up, because I'm imagining maybe there is a young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person maybe listening to this podcast and maybe they've been really disconnected with country and they haven't had that community around them. Are there any tips on what resources could, how do they get in contact and how do they reconnect? Is there any programs out there? Because, you know, we've really emphasised that this is so important and I am wary that there's a lot of people out there who who haven't had that access to community. Is there anything for them to be able to reconnect? I, um, if I could speak um, for the Kimberley region, we do have um, programs through our ranger programs we have rangers, um, you know, placed throughout the Kimberley in their own on their own land, and often they can um, be uh, first put contact um, for them to be re-engaged in um, for those on country experiences. Uh, if you've been, um, I I always um, like to think if you can get in contact with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. A person um, and just have that, have the yarn, have that little chat, and um, you know, just just decided a few things. Um, look, we, we've had that experience recently. We're just talking to one person, just sort of open up the whole world of of people and connection, um, you know. And that's all it took, because um, you know, because family. To us, um, uh, they're the core of who we are. Then it's always important for us who have that strong family connection. We have that that um, need to want to connect everybody else too, you know. So, and anyway, it doesn't matter if you can't find your mob, you can hang with us. You can be part of my mob anyway, you know. Um, we do that, and we do that very well. We look out for one another. Um, so I would just say, you know, for a young person, just, just, you know, um, don't be afraid to just to ask for help or to connect with someone because that one person that you speak to will be connected to the whole of Australia. <laughs> yeah, I love that because it's a reminder for for maybe a young person out there that the thread is still there, you are still connected um, and that you're not alone. On that really positive note, um, we are going to finish up tonight's podcast. Um, 
A really big thank you. I mean, Vicky, I don't know if you looked at the chat boxes, but just so many thank yous tonight from our audience for sharing your experiences and just these moving accounts of connection to country. I've learnt so much tonight um, about what well-being means and it's really just expanded you know my horizon in terms of mental health um, across different cultures uh, so thank you so much to our incredible panel David Edwards, Vicky McKenna and Leilani Darwin. Um, as you can see on screen here we want to remind you that there are online tools as well we've got the essential network uh, please do check us out this is for health professionals we also have Mind Compass as well and of course the Black Dog Institute online clinic so do check us out and there are more resources on there than what we've highlighted tonight so visit our website please um, we also have other resources and a reminder of other podcasts as well connect with us on Facebook um, and LinkedIn um, and for our July podcast, we are going to be talking um, about successful conversations about mental health with adolescents. Um, and we know that not, you know, we've got psychologists and social workers and allied health and primary um, healthcare workers that do work in the space of adolescents, but we also know that you can encounter them without actually, you know, working. In, in that specialized field. Um, so, you know, this would be a really great podcast um, for people who just, you know, want to know more about how to speak to adolescent clients. And we've got a really fantastic panel um, being put together here. Uh, so thank you everyone tonight uh, for your contribution. Uh, if you have any further questions, please do contact us on um, education at blackdog.org.au. Thank you to my wonderful panel members for a really, and I don't say this lightly, quite a moving podcast tonight. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.